0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 298. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts at my webpage, BrianMcClanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com mclanahanacademy.com it's always free to enroll when you do enroll click on that 10 myths of American history you get that class free of charge or check your email and you get the class free of charge and you want to enroll because if you're listening to this podcast on March 18th it is the last day that I'm going to be running the extra special deal on a new course I've got out if you're a McClanahan academy subscriber so you want to get that because this is it so uh Going out to McClanahan Academy, subscribe, and purchase a course or eight. Um, it's a great way to support the show. You get awesome stuff out of it as well. You get the courses, so it's a win-win situation for you. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep these lights on. Help keep the podcast going. And always, you can go to t r u e learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Also a great website. Over 20 classes there and uh, economics, philosophy, history. I teach there with Tom and Brad Berzer, Kevin Goodspin, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a whole lot of great people. And while we're all now quarantined because of coronavirus, you can advance your education. And a lot of people, of course, everyone's forced to homeschool at this point. So become a homeschooler with McClanahan Academy. Um, Get that extra education they wouldn't get somewhere else. Um, Again, great way to support the show, great way to support the show with Learn True History, a lot of great ways to uh, get involved. And always please send me your requests for program uh, suggestions. I do read them. I may not respond to them, but I do read them and I do appreciate that. Share the podcast around on social media. Like it uh, and share it and rate it wherever you get your podcasts uh, please help spread the word of thinking locally and acting locally. And of course, in this particular situation now we're facing, thinking locally and acting locally is really all we can do at this point. I think the emperor has no clothes is becoming apparent every single day in this current coronavirus mess that we're in right now. Um, and so I talked about that in the last show: quarantine and what does what powers do the general government? Or does the general government really have in this situation, and what powers do the state and local governments have? And I think it's pretty apparent that the general government understands it can't do much. And so we're in a situation now where the state and local governments are now taking action and trying to decide what they're going to do. Now, we can question some of the things they're doing. I know one question was raised, why is it if there's vulnerable populations, why aren't we just quarantining them and allowing the populations that aren't as vulnerable to go out and continue to work and keep the economy going? That is a good question, um, but of course, the non-vulnerable populations then will become super carriers, and of course, could impact the vulnerable population. So there's really no there's no winning in all of this. I mean, this is this is going to be, I think, looking back a hundred years from now, historians are going to look at this period in 2020 and wonder if this was a turning point for the United States. I hope it's not. I hope this thing is over in six weeks and we're done. I don't think it's going to be the case, uh, but. Uh, You don't know. And so all you can do at this point is take care of your family, take care of yourself. Do anything you can to sweep around your own back door and take care of your own group, maybe your neighbors. you got to start thinking locally and acting locally now. you got to start protecting yourself now. And that's all we really can do. But I do want to talk about this from a historical standpoint and look at this at thinking about Trump. He's been on the television just about every day now with a press conference. And where do we start seeing this? I think that's a good question. And and somebody actually asked this in a way. Um, When did we start seeing the president come out as the spokesman for the United States in terms of domestic policy or crises or things of that nature? The presidency, of course, was designed to be head of state. But it wasn't designed to be doctor-in-chief or labor boss-in-chief, or legislator-in-chief, none of that. The presidency was never designed for any of that. The Congress would have had to take that role, if it even had the delegated powers to do that, which you can question whether it did or not. Of course, the states can do just about anything they want in these areas. I laugh because uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida was begging the general government to stop domestic travel in the state of Florida from, from air, airports. Well, the state of Florida owns virtually every airport in the state, or local, local governments do, so shut them down. Say so we're closing the airport to anything but uh, to any passenger travel. We can close it to uh, to anything but say FedEx or UPS. So we can get goods and we can get goods in, but we're gonna close it to any domestic flights. We're just closing it. I mean, if they wanted to do it, they could do it. The general government doesn't need to shut down air travel for the states to shut down air travel. Florida now has shut down bars and and uh, nightclubs, but it's still allowing the beaches to remain open. Uh, There's no, there's no curfew or quarantine on the beaches. So you've got all these spring breakers go down there. And of course there are super spreaders for this particular virus. So, I mean, the state of Florida could do all of that. It could shut down anything it wants. Not just that your local community could shut these things down. It could say, look, we're imposing in our city. We're saying we're going to shut down these type of establishments. And this is for the public health for, for protection. Now, I know the libertarians that listen to this podcast are going to be very upset about that. And I'm not saying these are good policies or not. What I'm saying is the, general, the state governments and the local governments have the authority to do these things. The general government of the United States does not. <clears throat> and so when you, when you try to trace this historically, where do we start seeing these powers? Where do we start seeing the general government assume it has powers that it doesn't have? So if you go back to George Washington and you look at the Washington administration, you can see there was one particular instance in the Washington administration, the Whiskey Rebellion, where the general government called up the militia to go put down an insurrection in the western part of Pennsylvania. And I think this is the first time, clearly, that we had, and of course in the first administration, where we had an abuse of power by the central authority. Because in that particular situation, the general government was not required. The state government said it had it under control. The state government, under Thomas Mifflin, who was uh, the governor of the state, had participated in the process of writing and uh, drafting and ratifying the Constitution, had told the Washington administration that the militia was unnecessary. The militia was unnecessary, to send into the western part of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> but Washington did it anyways. And, of course, John Jay, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the time, a man who had been a participant in the Federalist Essays, which everyone cites as you know the definitive essays, said, this is unconstitutional. You can't send in the military unless the governor of Pennsylvania says they need it. And, of course, this is very clear in the Constitution. The militia can only be sent into a state If the legislature of the state, or the governor, if the legislature is not in session, requests it. In this particular case, Thomas Mifflin did not request the militia. No one requested the militia. But Alexander Hamilton, seeing this as a partisan issue, and I'm reading a current book right now by Stephen Knott, and I will be offering a review of this book because it's absolutely ridiculous, saying that the Washington administration was trying to put down partisanship. There was no one more hyper-partisan than Alexander Hamilton. He was nonpartisan in a partisan way. He was nonpartisan because he recognized that uh, they were going to lose the arguments from the other side if they continued in the process. So Hamilton persuades Washington to send in the army, and they do. So here we have the usurpation of power by the general government in the first administration of the United States. In fact, I often say if you want to go back to when the Constitution was destroyed, it was in the first Congress when they passed the Judiciary Act of 1789. That's when the Constitution was shredded, then, at that point. But Hamilton certainly persuades Washington to send in the army, and from that point forward, there's a precedent established of taking power from the states by the general government that the general government does not have. And so as we can follow this out, we don't see a whole lot of this from here on out. I mean, we do see the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Sedition Act being one that was highly resisted by the people of Virginia and Kentucky. Um, and other states, too, actually. Uh, the, what's, what's now known is other states were receptive to it when it was often said they weren't. But there were other states that were receptive to the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. Um, but this is a point where we have the general government usurping power it doesn't have. But by the time you get to the Jefferson administration, that that goes away. We had very Jeffersonian presidents and a lot of different, even when they weren't, at least theoretically, even when they weren't, they were still Jeffersonian. I point to Benjamin Harrison, and Benjamin Harrison is often considered to be a uh, an anomaly, right? I mean, there's a guy only served one month. He's the best president because he only served one month. Or he's the worst president because he only served one month. Whatever it is. But Harrison in his inaugural address, which is often cited as the reason the man died, which I don't believe. Harrison in his inaugural address cited Jefferson four times and Washington none. Jefferson four times and Washington none. Zachary Taylor in the 18... 18- 40s, 1849, did cite Washington, not Jefferson. But you had this general conception of the presidency that was more Jeffersonian than Washingtonian, and that is the president should be hands-off. And I know Stephen, Stephen not argues that's not the case. Jefferson was hands-on, Washington was hands-off. Um, <clears throat> but when you look at the powers of the executive branch and what Jefferson was saying, you know, looking at the presidency and downgrading its role in the government, that was an important thing. That's where all these presidents, from Jefferson up to Lincoln, generally fell on the political spectrum when it came to presidential power. Andrew Jackson, anomaly. But um, when we get to Abraham Lincoln, that again changes, at least for a brief time. Lincoln, of course, used the, the secession winter <clears throat> as a crisis situation where he could call up the National Guard without congressional approval. Now, there is a difference between that and what we go through now. At least in that particular case, you could say, well, there's been violence, there's been Fort Sumter, there's been actual physical conflict, and we need to do something about that. So at least you could make a case that maybe if the Congress had called up those troops... Maybe if the Congress has suspended habeas corpus. You could make a case that that was somehow constitutional. But there again, that's kind of a stretch because the state of South Carolina, which was now out of the Union, did not request the troops to go in and put down this insurrection or this crisis in its own borders. So I point to the Lincoln administration as a point where we did still have A situation where we had unconstitutional use of executive power. Without question, unconstitutional use of executive power in the Lincoln administration. Perhaps you're in the Johnson or Grant administrations. Grant more than Johnson, because Johnson was reluctantly being dragged into sending troops into the South. Grant enthusiastically did it. You could say because of Reconstruction, because of some opposition to Reconstruction policies, which of course were also unconstitutional. You could say that there was a need for the militia there. But again, this is a stretch. The Supreme Court even ruled against some of these policies. They ruled against the Ku Klux Klan Acts and said that they're unconstitutional because civil courts were open. You can't have military courts when civil courts are open. So, there are even parts of those bills, the Enforcement Acts, that were unconstitutional. So, when you look at this, the... Early examples of presidential power and where we start seeing the president out front and center in crises, it's, it was in situations where you had insurrections or rebellions. Washington, Jackson potentially, Lincoln, Grant. Nowhere there are we talking about this when it comes to an economic downturn. And we had them during the Grant administration. 1873, you had a terrible panic, a Great Depression. I mean, you had one during the Van Buren administration. The president was not out there calling for relief for citizens. Now, there were some congressmen that were doing it, calling for relief bills for citizens. But you had depressions. You had panics. You had one during the, uh, during the uh, Madison administration, you had one during the Monroe administration. I mean, you had panics, you had depressions. But the president was not out front and center saying, these are the things we got to do. They're going to get up, make a speech, write a write a long speech that everyone reads. They didn't do these kind of things. It wasn't until, and, and I'll give you another example, Grover Cleveland. When he had a terrible economic downturn in 1893, perhaps one of the worst in American history, Cleveland said it's not the job of the government to support the people. So you didn't have Grover Cleveland standing out on a soapbox making speeches saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Nobody did that. The private sector handled depressions around the turn of the century. When you look at late 19th century, turn of the century, a J.P. Morgan personally bailing out the stock market with his own money. So this is what we had until we get to uh, a and, and presidential response until we get to the 1920s. And I'm going to talk about that, and we're going to focus on the next half of the podcast of this episode and what's happened and where we get to Donald Trump. I'll see you for that one. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why why I created it. First a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years and I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that and this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up, it's free And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum and Uh, My family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum. That's why I designed the United States History 18 to 1865 and 1865 to the present. You've got enough material. You've got lesson plans. You've got uh, tests. You've got reading material. You've got reading seminars. You've got 36 weeks. If you take them, buy them both. You've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But It's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about presidential response to crises and where all this comes from, where the idea the president has to be out making televised or at least public responses to economic or public health crises, and where that comes from. We know that in 1918, we had the Spanish flu, and Woodrow Wilson wasn't out stumping about the Spanish flu, which was devastating to the American economy, devastating to the American social order. I mean, people would get that flu, and they would die that day. I mean, this thing was horrible. It hit them like a train, and they, they were dead within 24 hours. Horrible virus. Horrible but yet the president wasn't out insisting on quarantines and other things. Um, some of this stuff did happen. People did quarantine. But this was, again, local and state governments or local communities that started doing these things to try to figure this out. My own great-grandmother in Nebraska was involved in the relief effort there for people with Spanish flu. And um, she was a nurse. She was nursing tending to people and hoping she didn't get it. They lived in a root cellar to try to avoid the contagion. In Nebraska. My grandfather was six living in a root cellar. So um, you did have local responses to things, but not general government. All that really begins to change. Even you look at Warren Harding. I mean, nothing. Let's do nothing about this. Of course, Herbert Hoover was pushing Harding when the Mississippi River flooded in the early 1920s for federal relief. And that's really the first time. Uh, I'm sorry, pushing uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge, excuse me, not Harding. Hoover was pushing Harding to do some type of federal relief for the Depression, but when you got to Calvin Coolidge and you had the Mississippi River flood, you had um, the first time you really had a federal response to a natural disaster was that Mississippi River flood of the 1920s when Coolidge was president, and he thought the Red Cross should do things about this, not the general government, and of course he was right, but it was votes. You had large percentages of African-Americans who were displaced or, or homes destroyed, extreme uh, dislocation because of that Mississippi River flood. And of course, they voted Republican at that point. So Hoover said, look, we're missing an opportunity here to support our, our electorate, our voters. If we don't come in and help these people, they might not vote for us in the next election. So it came down to voters. It came down to political motivation to go in and use unconstitutional powers by the general government to do this. Now, I mean, we could say that Well, this is good. We're giving relief. But where do you draw the line and when do you start now? That's important to mention Hoover because Hoover, the boy wonder, when he becomes president in 1929, of course, we have the economic crash. Not caused by a pandemic. But Hoover doesn't get out in front. He doesn't go out in front and really say a whole lot about this. But behind the scenes, he is trying to use the general government to mitigate the problems alleviate the suffering of the Depression. But this is when you start to see it really in the 1920s, late 1920s, mid to late 1920s. And then, of course, we get Franklin Roosevelt, which is where everything changes. So Franklin Roosevelt's elected in 1932 and then becomes president in 1933, and he gives his very famous inaugural address where he says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that begins the process by which the president becomes... The soother-in-chief, where the president is going to to make grand statements about what we should do and not do. And, of course, Franklin Roosevelt gave 30 so-called fireside chats during his time as president. He gave most of them in the 1930s. During the Great Depression, he would go on to the radio and he would say... This is what we're going to do. Everything's going to be okay. And think about the image of the fireside chat. This is what these things are called, fireside chats. The image behind that. You sit down around the radio. Of course, at this time, no televisions. Television had been invented by the 1940s. In the 30s, we don't have it. So you sit down around the radio. Uh, you have the fire going because a lot of these are made in the winter, spring, winter, spring. So you've got some cold weather. you got the fire going. And sit down, listen to my voice, relax, everything's going to be okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close down the banks unconstitutionally. We're going to save the economy unconstitutionally. We're going to do these things because this is what I can do as president. But of course, he said in his inaugural address, if Congress doesn't act, he's going to. So this is where we get the idea the president has to respond to every crisis with some type of economic or political or social intervention. It's Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt is a transformational figure because of that. Now, the Democrat Party will just run with this from this point forward. Actually, had somebody ask me a a message. Hey, where does this come from? It's it's Franklin Roosevelt. And the idea that we should have universal health care and all these other things, that's Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights. which he outlined in 1945. This became the talking points for the Democrat Party. But when the president has to get out and out front and do these things and say, this is what we're going to do, and everyone listen to me, and this is how it's going to be okay, it's Franklin Roosevelt that starts that process. And from that point forward, the president will start doing these things on a regular basis. Now, William McKinley was the first to have presidential press briefings you go back to the 1890s and McKinley was having press briefings, which, so he could drive an agenda, right? So you go back to McKinley, you could say, well, I mean, you start seeing this. But during a crisis, during a crisis, it's really Franklin Roosevelt that begins this process by which we think the president has to be the doctor-in-chief, the legislator-in-chief, the labor boss-in-chief, the gardener-in-chief, anything that we need to ensure that we're going to Solve this crisis. And so Harry Truman, of course, ran with this. Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society. And, of course, they're going to get out front of these things. I also want to point out another president that's often overlooked in this process, and that's Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower is important because he's a Republican. And whether Republican presidents nowadays realize it or not, they're following Dwight Eisenhower. You see, Dwight Eisenhower was certainly in line with Roosevelt. And the president should be out in front. And saying things about crisis. Eisenhower was a foreign policy expansionist. I mean, even though he railed against the military industrial complex, I mean, look, Eisenhower is the Eisenhower administration is responsible for the CIA, responsible for all the proxy wars and other things that start taking place. I mean, that's the Dulles brothers, which were brought into power through Eisenhower. And of course, you start seeing the expansive American foreign policy of uh, the Cold War. Not that it wasn't there before with Harry Truman. Of course it was. But Eisenhower really put that on steroids. But the president was going to be out front making statements about things we should and should not do, about economic crisis. Um, And the Republicans, I mean, it's okay if Eisenhower does it. Republicans can do it. So then this is where this stuff comes from. This is why Donald Trump can make a press briefing every day And everyone expects the Trump administration to do something about this coronavirus outbreak. Because this is what the president does, Is thought. The president goes on and the president makes recommendations and heavy-handed policies. And the president has to solve these crises. And and you watch reporters. You watch reporters and say, how do you think you've responded to the crisis? On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think you've done? And Trump will say, it's a 10, clearly. Oh, no, 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 you've gotten, you've gotten a one, a two, a three, maybe. The whole idea of the president having 100 days when he comes into office to do anything is a legacy of Franklin Roosevelt. You go back and you look at James Garfield, who was assassinated about 100 days into his presidency. I mean, shot 100 days. Didn't die till later, but he only had one cabinet meeting. He didn't do anything, really, in those first 100 days. Wouldn't that be refreshing to have a James Garfield back? That doesn't do anything in 100 days. I mean, look, we clearly know that the general government made the depression worse. And they're going to make this economic crisis worse. We're already trillions of dollars in debt. And now they're talking about giving $1,000 to every American. It's ridiculous. There's no money for this. And what is that going to do? It's not going to loosen up the supply chain. It's not going to make it to where uh, you have more, more things in stock. That's going to be the real problem. I'm seeing images of Los Angeles and grocery stores in Los Angeles completely cleaned out and not getting restocked. That's going to be the real problem. $1,000, what's that going to do? You might as well just light it up. It's going to be, you might as well use that to keep yourself warm because that's all you're going to have for it. If you don't have supply, if you don't have the things in stores. Now, I know people are going to be hurting. They got to pay their bills, they got to pay their mortgage. But where is that really going to go? So you think about where that $1,000 would go. <clears throat> it would go to pay your rent. So what you're doing is ensuring that your rent gets paid, the banks still get their stuff, you stay in your house. But on the other hand, I don't know if a whole lot of eviction notices are going to be issued during a crisis like this if people aren't paying their rent or paying their mortgage. Somebody actually suggested, you know what Donald Trump should do? He should say that banks can't charge mortgages. Mortgages, two or three months, no banks can charge a mortgage. I mean, where does Trump have this type of authority? Now he's the banker-in-chief? Where does he have this kind of authority? Well, it all goes back to Franklin Roosevelt, who shut down banks, unconstitutionally and unilaterally. Shut them down. No more banks. Bank holidays. You see, we have to go back to Roosevelt. If you want to know where all this massive hysteria starts, it's Roosevelt. There's a belief that, of course, Roosevelt made the Depression worse when he took office, because unemployment spiked in the 1930s. Perhaps that was because of actions Roosevelt and, of course, Hoover was taking during that that during that period of time. And we saw a recession in 1937. Now, the critics would say that recession was caused when the general government backed out of helping people. But regardless, we had a recession in 1937. So. This becomes a really interesting situation moving forward. The president, you're going to see the president on TV more. We've got these quarantines now in place, lockdowns, all these things happening. But where does the president get the authority to do that? Well, it was just taken. It was essentially taken by Franklin Roosevelt in 1933. And the president has since just exponentially expanded it. Of course, you look at the Obama administration and some of the things the CDC is allowed to do now was not because the Constitution allows it, but it's because the Obama administration put it into place when we had the Ebola scare of 2011, which Ebola was a much more nasty virus, and it is a much more nasty virus than coronavirus, than than the COVID-19. Without question, Ebola has like, I mean, I think close to a 90% fatality rate when you get that nasty thing. COVID doesn't have anything near that. Of course, it is high for certain populations. Anyone really over forty, you got to be careful with it. But um, and even under that, I mean, people are dying of it there. I mean, it's it's horrible. So um, we do have uh, the Obama administration getting involved in this with things like well, what can the CDC do? What can the what can uh, these other federal health organizations? What can they do about this particular situation? But all of this comes from Franklin Roosevelt. All of it comes the idea of a fireside chat, the idea of the president getting out and being somber. Uh, we really have to tackle this thing. It could take months, Could take, but we're going to tackle it. We're going to come back stronger than ever. We're going to do these things. Here's what we're doing. All these things could be done by your state and local governments. All these things could be done by local communities to try to ensure that people are taken care of. I mean, people are afraid right now, which is driving some of the problem to begin with. People are afraid. They don't know what to do. They don't know if their grocery store is going to be stocked. They don't know if their pharmacy is going to have their medications. They don't know if if the water department is going to shut down the power plant is going to shut down. They don't know. They don't know if they order stuff on Amazon or other things. They can get it. I saw Amazon is hiring 100,000 more workers. This is where millennials who are not as susceptible to the virus really could step up and be this workforce, this labor force that people are going to need. And it's an opportunity. People are going to need these things. It's also an opportunity if you have online gigs where you can uh, make a little extra income. It's a way to do it. I mean, help people out. If you've got a little, I mean, you can do these things. Homeschooling, all these types. It's really a, a, a way to get involved in these things and uh, and help each other out. And of course, keep the economy going. People working from home. Do what you can to stay safe, practice good hygiene. Make sure you've got supplies uh, make sure you've done some things to help yourself. And that's really where we go from here. But in terms of presidential power, people have asked, where does it come from? It comes from Franklin Roosevelt, the fireside chat idea that the, the idea the president has to get out and be front and center and solving every problem under the sun. You didn't really see that before Franklin Roosevelt. He is a watershed president. He is a real turning point in American history. Without question, Franklin Roosevelt is a a president who really changed the direction of America in executive power. It wasn't Richard Nixon. A lot of people point to Nixon as the imperial president, a lot of the leftists. No, no. Franklin Roosevelt. It wasn't Wilson. Wilson was setting the blueprint for policy, but Roosevelt was the one, image-wise, that made all of this possible. All right. That's my take on the situation. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.